Hey there folks, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode two of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to raise more money and make a bigger difference. And on today's episode, if you've ever felt frustrated that your charity spends loads of effort getting people to do a fundraising event of any kind, but then has too little success in actually inspiring people to stay in touch and support in other ways, then you're gonna find today's episode really interesting. Because today we're looking at a couple of really strong examples of how it's possible to inspire event participants to sign up as regular supporters. It's an interview I recorded really recently with Andy King, who's now at Rays of Sunshine, but who used to work at East African Playgrounds. And there, this strategy completely transformed their results. The number of people who sign up for a regular gift after doing an event went up from 1% to around 60%. And this initiative was a key factor in the charity's income growing threefold in just three years. The approach that Andy talks about led to growth in various areas of fundraising, including corporate partnerships and trusts, and obviously individual giving. But whatever kind of fundraising you do, I think you're going to find Andy's ideas really helpful. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by Bright Spot Mastery Programs. So if you need to increase income in corporate partnerships or major donor and trust fundraising, these programs will help. As well as the advanced strategies you learn on the training days, you receive one-to-one coaching to help you put those powerful techniques into practice. To find out more about the Corporate Mastery and Major Gifts Mastery programmes, head over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. So hello and welcome to the podcast. Andy King, can you hear me? I can indeed. Hi Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time to chat to us. So you and I have had a decent couple of chats recently because I was really curious about a particular approach you've taken to uh, event fundraising and relationship fundraising. And I really wanted to share that story with the listeners to the podcast. But before we get into that, I think you've moved charities recently and you're now at Rays of Sunshine. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And how long have you been there? Uh, a calendar month today. Oh, okay, good. So it's really, really new. But before that, um, I think you, you've worked in fundraising for, for three or four years, uh, mostly at East African Playgrounds. Do you want to give me the, the short version of, of that journey? And then after that, we'll get into quite what an amazing difference happened in the income of East African Playgrounds across those three years, because that is especially why I wanted to pull out the technique you were using. But, but yeah, first, sure. first up, kind of, what's the, the, the brief version of your journey so far? Yeah, sure. So I got to uni and I wanted to be a journalist and then I met some journalists and changed my mind. Uh, and I did some internships with charities whilst I was there uh, and kind of fell into this, uh, this love of telling stories to make an impact uh, and, and to make a difference. Um, and whilst I was at university, I came across a charity called East African Playgrounds who build playgrounds in East Africa. They're good at a couple of things and, and naming themselves as one of them. And uh, basically, as I was graduating, they had a job opportunity. So I, I leapt at it to be their challenges officer. They run two in-house projects similar to how people climb Kilimanjaro for charity. But it was in Uganda where they operate trekking to see the last remaining wild silverback gorillas uh, and then volunteering on a playground build. So kind of seeing where the money that you've raised has gone. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I joined them because I knew the team really well and was really passionate about it. And it seemed like a really good opportunity to do something I knew a bit about already because we've been recruiting for that challenge, but also a place to really learn from. Um, and I kind of in my head was going to be there for two years. The first of year, the first year to, to learn the job, to learn what it's like to have the job, to kind of get to grips with, with being an adult um, and to being an adult who specifically does challenge fundraising. Um, with the aim of the second year starting to really deliver on that learning and, and do the best I could, which is more or less exactly what I did. So I spent the first year reading books, um, learning all of our internal systems, making systems where there weren't them, and the second year really doing my utmost to, to grow that program as much as I could by working out what we were doing that worked and doing more of it. So for example, we noticed that when we went into universities to speak to students, uh, if we went and asked a lecturer if we could speak for 30 seconds at the start of a lecture, um, when we later on in that day held meetings and asked people how they'd heard about it, a lot of them were saying lecture shout outs. So we started doing more lecture shout outs and therefore had more people attend just by looking at what it was that we were doing. One of the big things is that for small international development charities, getting people really passionate about your work is actually something quite difficult to do because it's often not something that people can see and isn't necessarily something they can relate to. So for us, taking hundreds of students out each year to literally see the work and the impact firsthand and letting go of that seemed completely crazy. So I knew that we just needed to find something that people would want to do. Um, and I looked at the approaches we'd taken in the past because it, it wasn't the first time we'd ever tried to fix it. But ultimately what we had been doing in the past is just a standard ask of, can you start giving us money please on a regular basis? Um, without really considering who they were, or why they might want to do that. Uh, so some important context is that a lot of the challenge participants that we took out as students, and so disposable income isn't necessarily something they have. And a really important point that I think I came across in this, this form of fundraising is that whether or not a student can afford something, and whether or not a student thinks they, thinks they can afford something, are quite different questions in that most students probably could afford to give a charity five pounds a month but they don't think they can and so it's unlikely that you're going to convince them to do that and the fundamental approach that I took was kind of a, a mass participation approach of it would be better to have more of a lower amount than very very few big amounts in that we were asking people for five pounds a month and there was less than a 1% uptake. So what we did was we just completely dropped that ask to be £2 a month instead on the basis that not only could students afford that, but they knew that they could afford that. And saying that they couldn't was, was a big statement to say. And then we made sure that they had a reason to give as well. So we made them feel special we created what we called the alumni club so the club of people who had done the challenge events in the past and said that we would hold reunion events 
that they would get a newsletter and if they were applying for a job and wanted to use us as a reference, they could. Um, we were already offering students references and we were already doing the newsletter. So the only additional part to that was the reunion event, but that then doubles as a supporter cultivation event that we can bring other people to and had significant other merits aside from it. So yeah, uptake just went a lot better than we, we thought it would. And it was about a 60% uptake from there. Um, and something that we thought was really notable was that we were asking for two pounds a month, but the average gift actually ended up at about £3.10 because a number of students were giving £5 and a couple were even giving 10 um, because they had decided for themselves that they could afford that rather than us deciding it for them. Yeah. And we have noticed that some of them have gone on to graduate, uh, form employment and then up their gift when asked. So we did ask at the cultivation event uh, to make them aware that they could increase their gift if they chose to. And we had about 50 people come to that. And I want to say seven of them increased their gift at that stage. Mm -hmm. So there was a definite point of if you ask someone for something that you know and they know they can afford, they might surprise you by offering you more than that. Mm -hmm. But by putting it in a stage where they feel like you know who they are and what they can afford, they're much more likely to say yes in the first place. And I think it was, it was that that tangible we've looked at who you are why you're with us and what we can do for you in the future here is our offer to you that we feel is appropriate they agreed and thought it was appropriate as well um and the great thing about that was even though they're only giving us a couple of uh well two pounds a month each that's a really good excuse to then continue to invest in their supporter journey to stay more directly in touch with them than we would have done otherwise. And then that's led to other partnerships and relationships forming from there. So for example, quite a lot of our, our participants have then gone back to their university to help us recruit the team for the following year. Some of them have signed up to do the challenge again. They really opened us up to their networks. So one in particular, her aunt worked for a trust and foundation. So they introduced us to that family trust, which has already led to a grant and a really decent relationship with that funder. I was the first corporate partnerships person that East African Playgrounds had ever had. And having those graduates who'd gone into a variety of different companies and different roles was really, really exciting because of the people that they were able to introduce us to. As I said, I was the first partnerships person. I was the first person focused on new business. And the first pitch that, corporate, that, that East African Playgrounds ever did to a corporate partner was to Mars because we were able to get in through their graduate program. Mm -hmm. So it really did open a lot of different doors to us so that we were able to build our corporate program basically from within companies, within young talent. And it led to some really exciting propositions and also a really great chance to get opinions on, for example, a charity championship package based on, based on opinions from people who might then go on to be charity champions. So it was really a useful resource that we could justify spending the time on because they were giving us a regular gift. Mm. Mm. So what I'm, I'm hearing is step one, just 
keeping a relationship with these people at all. It wasn't even mostly about the huge income that would have come from those two pounds a month. It was uh, staying in touch at all and quite deliberately treating them as part of your family, fully yeah. vested in your cause and your mission, rather than out there some, you know, someone who might give us money. And so much of these other strengths of your approach comes from we're all in it together and them feeling that. So then, of course, yeah. they're doing these extra things because they're not helping you per se, they're helping the mission. Yes, exactly that, yeah. And I think it, it does require quite a joined up approach from a fundraising team of being willing to hand over a previous event participant to the new business person, for example. And there's a real advantage in being both the event person and the new business person, because I just put them from one hand into the other. There's something to be said for a donor-focused journey where rather than focusing on your individual targets, you focus on what's best for that person and the organization. And it's really, really beneficial to make an event participant or a corporate individual a friend of the charities rather than a friend of the fundraisers. And that can be really powerful to move people forwards. Mm. Yeah. So there's so many um, of these details I'd love to, to pick up on. Um, but a, a top line, it sounds like East African programs now does have successful corporate fundraising going on where before it didn't at all. And my yeah. sense is that that wouldn't have happened had it not been for this, this uh, holistic approach to keeping relationships quite deliberately with the people vested in your cause. Um, could we um, just take an, another look at this same kind of approach? Because I think you're a trustee for another charity and you helped yeah, yeah. implement something similar. But already I've logged this approach went from a 1% take up to a 60% yeah. take up. And in various ways that contributed to the overall success of the organization. And then you went and applied a similar kind of model to another charity. I don't know if the numbers were exactly the same, but what did you do there and what was the gist? Yeah, sure. So I'm a trustee of, of Raising Futures Kenya, who are a fairly small charity as well, about a £200,000 turnover. And I wanted to see if the approach would work with people who were doing events that were less cause focused. So we applied the same approach to a different type of event where they were less invested in the cause per se. They were doing a scavenger hunt across London. There was about 40 people taking part. And the way that it worked was they went out and took photos with particular parts of London and then came back. We put those photos into a presentation. They stuck around for the presentation to find out who had won. And at the end of that presentation, we added in a few slides about the cause and what they could help achieve with a regular gift. Again, considering who they were, what an appropriate ask would be, etc. cetera. Um, and again, we, we put it in a club model to make them feel like it was something bespoke to them. We called it the Founders Club because the charity had just rebranded. So we were offering them the chance to be a member of the Founders Club of this new brand and take ownership in that. And it was a minimum ask of three pounds a month to join a WhatsApp group where one of the one of the people that worked for the charity in Kenya would send a monthly video of what was going on. And again, the average gift was actually about six pounds. Um, and I want to say nine of the 40 people took it up and obviously wouldn't have done otherwise if we hadn't given them that appropriate ask point. Mm. And fantastic. So, so broadly, the different, slightly different um, tactic, but still the, the, 
this, the same overall philosophy is working. And is, that, is it still early days for that tactic? So you've yet, yet to hear data about the, the next version of that? Yeah, so that, that event only took place in November. And we have had some really meaningful interaction come from it. So, for example, one of those people is now doing some skilled volunteering for us. So they are a master's student in statistics and they're helping us develop how we feedback our impact and making that more appropriate to other donors. Um, but in terms of other like fundraising instructions and stuff, we're still building on those relationships for now because it was a, a first touch point for them, really. Mm. So... Um couple of really good examples of, of taking a thing where many charities are, are somehow not making use of this opportunity after all the effort they've invested to, to, to connect with the person in the first place. And in both cases, you've, you've found a way to actually make it work. And I think, uh, to me, a lot of how you've managed to do it is starting with better insight. I know we always comes back to this in, in fundraising. Yeah. Rather than what we want them to do, because we need money to pay for this stuff, yeah. Simply you worked, A, you started off with just a frustration, an intellectual frustration that this is really crazy that we, we can't make this work better. Yeah. There must be a solution somewhere. But then the, the, the way you actually managed to make the breakthrough wasn't sitting down on a beanbag being creative. It was quite doing the legwork of more deliberate insight as to the donor's point of view, what they're like, how they feel about how rich they are, where they go, you know, what they care about. The, the, the tweak in the, the setup and the approach and the, and the pr proposition mm. comes from a deeper understanding of that potential supporter's point of view. Is that your take on a lot of how this has been achieved? Yeah, absolutely. I think considering donor motivations and why, why they're there has been a lot of it. Um, rather than considering what we want them to be, considering what they, what they might want themselves to be and how we facilitate that. I think it helps that it was an intellectual frustration because it made it quite an open, an open opportunity in that anything we achieved was going to be better than what we were getting at that point with a 1% uptake. And so we were able to experiment more in what we thought they might actually want rather than being given a ridiculous target it was a can we make this work and if so how and that allowed us to be more creative and find something that did work so yeah yeah that, that and, and um just practically speaking lots of people yeah. talk about uh, or of course i listen to my donor but I've noticed it's really tempting to carry on doing what you're doing rather than make the effort to do a focus group or send out some questionnaires or go and actually ask more questions with the seek of intention of genuinely understanding better. Maybe yeah. there was no special tactic you did. Maybe it was just a, a, a real, you prioritized above all getting to the heart of, of this insight thing. But mm. what actually did you do? And any tips to the listener who, who has good intentions about this, but, but often hasn't quite got round to actually practicing it? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I've always had a, had a tendency to pick, especially in, in challenges fundraising and events fundraising, three or four event participants per year that I use as a sounding board. And I 
tend to ask their permission quite early on about that. When I, when I seem to click with them intellectually, when I have a better relationship with that person because they're particularly engaged, I basically ask them if they would mind offering me their opinion a couple of times throughout the year and then speak to them directly rather than necessarily my colleagues. Because a lot of the time, if you want to know what a donor wants, you shouldn't ask someone else what they think a donor wants, you should ask the donor. Um, and by having three or four of them, ideally from different places and different backgrounds, you get quite a good cross section. I've never had the time or the resource necessarily to build a full focus group, but just the occasional text conversation or, or phone call with those three or four people has been really beneficial. And a lot of that drove how much we asked for, uh, how we propositioned it, how we presented it, because I asked them their opinions. And in particular with the alumni club offering, the really good thing about that was that it meant that when we started pushing it out, we had four people that were already brought in because they'd helped shape it and they thought it was a good idea. So they were then willing to speak to their peers that they knew about the fact that they'd helped shape it and were proud of it. Um, I'm a month into my new job, as I said, and I've already kind of identified particular corporate champions that I'll be doing the same thing with here, where we're trying to get corporate individuals to become individual givers. You need their perspective, and I think it's quite easy to tell yourself that you have it and that you know what your donors want, and therefore you shaped it around that. But it's very easy to take a donor start point and get somewhere else quite far away, whereas involving them in the shaping of that product is the best way to keep it actually what they want it to be in a regular check-in. I think it's quite easy to ask other people who you think know donors what donors want rather than going directly to the supporter themselves but it really does help and we're working on that with corporates now as well yeah and and so much of the strength of, of your approach i think comes from the 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 instinct and the courage to open up your doors and see these other people as just as motivated in, in this mission as, and being part of this family trying to help this important outcome be achieved rather than a uh, them and us however worthy them might be when they give us their money many yeah. charities really uh, the, the, there's this massive wall between us and them and um this last example you've just just given me gives me a sense of a, a philosophy that is you know we're all part of this mission and uh, you, you know many charities don't make use they're not open and transparent and therefore they really miss all this amazing opportunity in involving yeah. others outside the charity. Yeah, definitely. So Andy, thank you so much for talking us through your approach and those couple of key stories that bring to life how this relationship fundraising approach has really helped in those couple of contexts. And um, if people want to find out more or, or, or connect with you, uh, do you have a, a, a Twitter account or could people contact you on LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Either of those is fine. I'm on Twitter at Andy King Raising and I'm on LinkedIn as Andy King. So yeah, do feel free to reach out at any point. Fantastic. So thank you for talking us through, through those examples. It's, it's massively helped me and I hope the listener as well will be inspired to keep plugging away with some of the principles that have worked so well for you so far. I look forward to seeing what 
happens in the next chapter for you at Rays of Sunshine, and maybe we could catch up again at some point to find out what, what's going on. But for now, yeah. thank you so much for your time today, Andy. Thanks so much, Rob. So there you have it. As you can see, Andy's examples give us lots of food for thought for how truly seeking to understand our supporters' perspective and acting on those insights with a little bit of creativity can make a huge difference to your fundraising results. If you'd like to follow up on any of these ideas, do check out the show notes on our Brightspot fundraising website. And I'll also put a link in there to the East African Playgrounds website so you can get a sense of the great work that they do. If you're curious about any of the in-house training courses, one-to-one coaching or mastery programs that we offer, then again, all of that information is on the brightspotfundraising.co.uk website. And if you found today's episode helpful, please do spread the word by sharing it with your friends and colleagues. And secondly, we've got lots more great Brightspot stories and strategies coming up in the series, including uh, an episode on how to grow your resilience, another one on punching above your weight in corporate partnerships, another one on how to grow your community fundraising and lots, lots more. So if you don't want to miss out, please do subscribe to the podcast today. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Best of luck applying any of the insights you took from today's episode. And until the next time, enjoy your fundraising. Mm -hmm.